Let's pray. Father, we trust you and we depend on your spirit to teach. So pray that Christ would be exalted, that Jesus would be, that Jesus would look beautiful in your word today. Help us understand who Paul is and who Timothy is in this letter so we can better understand what your word is ready to teach us. Cause us and help us to humbly submit to your truth, to take your word seriously and joyfully. So as we open up 1 Timothy, just pray that you would bless this adventure that we're going to take through this letter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, today we begin our expositional journey through 1 Timothy, and we'll cover the greeting today, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, so we're just doing two verses today. Um, but to, to better understand this letter, it would behoove us to know Timothy better and to know Paul better and understand what Timothy's doing and what Paul's doing and what's going on at the time. And so we'll give you a little, I'm going to give you a start with a little background on Timothy. We talk about Paul all the time because he writes 13 letters in the New Testament. So we learn about Paul's theology, we learn about the experiences that Paul has, and we look at the book of Acts and we see Paul's life and this journey he takes, and then we apply the truths of his letter to these moments in Acts where you see Paul. So it's just, there's a lot of historical context that's required to understand these New Testament letters. And so we understand Paul because we hear about Paul often, but uh, we don't hear about Timothy a lot. And now that we're reading 1 Timothy, a letter written by Paul and written to Timothy, we need to understand who Timothy is. So, Timothy has a mother and a grandmother that we learn about in 2 Timothy. His mother's name is Eunice, and his grandmother's name is Lois. And so, Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, were both devout Jews who then heard the gospel of Christ and believed. Growing up, for Timothy, he would have been taught the Old Testament from his grandmother and from his mother. So he grew up as like a devout Jew as well. And another reason we know this is because in 2 Timothy Timothy 3.15, Paul says to Timothy how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. So that term sacred writings refers to the Old Testament. So Timothy from childhood is learning the Old Testament because his mother and his grandmother are Jews, devout Jews. And devout Jews know the Old Testament. Oh boy. Sorry guys, hold on a second. This thing's falling apart and it's getting staticky. Thanks, you guys are patient. So, anyways, though Timothy's mom and grandmother are devout Jews and Timothy is raised essentially like a Jew, Timothy's dad is not a Jew. His dad is Greek. So Timothy ended up getting circumcised after his conversion, after he meets Paul in Acts 16.3. And so this is a little bit later into Timothy's life, uh, later into his... uh, teenage years, really, that Timothy gets circumcised after he meets Paul because the Jews that Paul is trying to reach as he takes Timothy with him on ministry to, to spread the gospel, the Jews that he's trying to reach, they know that Timothy's dad is Greek. And we see that in Acts 16. So because they know Timothy is Greek and they're Jews, even though Timothy was raised as a devout Jew and though he's half Jewish, Paul knows that the Jews are not going to accept Timothy unless he's circumcised because he's still half Jew. So Timothy gets circumcised for the sake of the gospel so that nothing stands in the way of the gospel to the Jews, and that's why. Timothy was from a town called Lystra, and uh, this was a, a town that was in the province of Galatia. So Galatia is a big area. If you know where modern day Turkey is, that's where Galatia was. So if you can visualize a map in your head of the Middle East, just put the Mediterranean Sea right in the middle. And if you look in 
uh, the kind of like upper left side of the Mediterranean Sea, if you're visualizing it, you have the, the boot of Italy, right? And if you go to the far east of the Mediterranean Sea is the shore of the land. That's Israel. So if you were to travel from Israel all the way to Italy, you'd have to walk north and walk right through Turkey today, which was Galatia at the time. Galatia is the province, the area that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in our book of Galatians in the Bible is Paul's letter to that area. That area has several towns and several churches, including Derby and Lystra and um, Iconium and Antioch. And so these are some of the main churches in that area. And, and Timothy was from Lystra, Lystra. And Paul preached the gospel in Lystra. We read this in Acts 14. And we see about some of the interactions that go on here in the book of Galatians as well. And it was, Lystra was the town that Paul preached the gospel in and was stoned nearly to death. So Paul was in Lystra. They don't, he preaches the gospel. They don't like the gospel he's preaching. So what they do is they all pick up stones and they stone him and he's down. He's unconscious at least to the point where they think he's dead. So imagine how badly you'd have to be beaten in order for people to think you're dead. I don't know if they knew how to check pulses back then, but if they did, it must have been a very light pulse because Paul was clearly unconscious if they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. His friends surround him. And they're like, Paul is dead. What are we going to do? And Paul gets up. He's like, oh, I'm alive. Um, he, so he never died. He just almost died. They thought he was dead. He pops up. He's like, let's go preach the gospel. And so he leaves Lystra, preaches the gospel somewhere else, comes back to Lystra like a the day or two later, to strengthen and encourage the believers who did believe when he was there. And leaves Lystra again. So he's been to Lystra twice and left it twice. Hasn't met Timothy yet, at least we don't think he has. Comes back to Lystra again, not too much, uh, not too much longer or later, that he comes back to Lystra and it is there, and we read about this in Acts 16, where Paul meets Timothy. And he meets this Timothy who's got to be, uh, he's got to be a teenager, maybe his early 20s at the latest, because 15 years later, Paul writes this letter. So this letter is written 15 years after Paul meets Timothy. And in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul calls Timothy a youth or a young man, which means Timothy's got to be at least 30-ish around there, uh, which means that when Paul met Timothy, he was late teens, early 20s. So it gives you an idea of who Timothy is, how old he is, and that helps us kind of construct this idea of what's going on, where are these men at when this letter is written, because it's very important that we understand what Timothy's doing and what Paul's talking about and their relationship and where they are and what they know and their circumstances and all those things as we read through this letter because the historical context shapes for us the meaning of every verse. And so we have to understand what's going on. So Timothy was with Paul. when Paul. So after Paul meets Timothy in Acts 16, he takes Timothy with him. And now Timothy is devoted to spending the rest of his life to the church and to the gospel. And, and, and Paul gets imprisoned in the early 60s AD. And Timothy's with him in that imprisonment. And what we also know is that later in Timothy's life, that he is also imprisoned and released from prison. That's all we know. All we know is that he was released from prison. It's from Hebrews 13.23 that we see that Timothy is released from prison. So he's not with Paul at that time. He's alone or maybe he's got friends with him, but he's not with Paul, but he is later imprisoned himself. And what Timothy becomes to Paul during Paul's missionary journeys is a messenger for his letters to the churches. And more than just a messenger, but Timothy becomes a representative of Paul. And that's important. That's an important distinction. Because if you're just the guy who carries a letter from one place to the next and goes, here, here, uh, Paul wrote this letter. I'll see you guys later. And you walk away. That's totally different. You're just a messenger. But Timothy goes as Paul's representative with the authority of Paul to the church. And we'll see how that kind of unfolds as well. And clearly Paul trusted Timothy to represent his teaching and his authority because Paul places Timothy in Ephesus 
to pastor the church there in Ephesus. So Ephesus is the town that has a church uh, to whom Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. So in Ephesus are the Ephesians. So our letter, our book in the Bible, Ephesians, is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that Timothy is pastoring in. So this letter, 1 Timothy, was written by Paul to Timothy as a means to guide Timothy in applying his theology to pastoral ministry in Ephesus. I mean, this is one of the most important realities in the church. A pastor's job, an elder's responsibility is to know the word of God, to not just know what it says, as in like reading and memorizing and knowing the verses, but to know the meaning of every text. That is a, an elder's highest priority in the church is to know the word of God, to know God by knowing the word of God, and to understand the meaning from the meaning comes our doctrine. So we get our doctrine from the word, and our doctrine guides the church. What do we believe at Grace Church? What do we teach at Grace Church? What is our theology or our doctrine? Well, that all depends on, honestly, it all depends on what I believe the word says and what Brian and I determine the word says together as elders of the church. The elders carry that responsibility. And so doctrine, be, is, is the doctrine of the pastor is super important because it's going to shape the, the nature of the church. It's going to direct the church in certain ministries. It's going to cause the church to believe certain things, to do certain things, to say certain things, to practice things a certain way. And because different people have different uh, interpretations of different texts, they have different doctrines. And either one is right and the other's wrong, or they're both wrong. They can't both be right. You can't have two doctrines that oppose each other and they both be right. That's not possible. Every text in the Bible has one meaning and one meaning only. Whatever the author intended it to mean and however the recipient of the letter, uh, however they received it. Those are the important things to understand. What did Paul mean and how would the original readers have read it? That's how we interpret scripture. And that's why historical context is so important because if we, we, we need to know who Paul is and what he's like and we need to know who Timothy is and what he's like so that when we read Paul's letter to Timothy, we can go, well, this is Paul and this is Timothy. This is Paul's theology because I, I have 13 letters from Paul to gather up and calculate and figure out what Paul's doctrine is. And then I got this letter from Paul directly to Timothy, two letters actually, directly to Timothy, where he instructs Timothy on how to practice this doctrine. So this book is not heavy in doctrine. It's just, it's heavy in practice, in the application of doctrine. And it's important because Timothy's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to say, this is how you should lead the church, because I don't have to teach you all my doctrines again because, Timothy, you've been with me for a while. You know what I believe. You know my theology. This is how you put it into play. This is how you use it in the church. This is how the things that I've taught you, which were directly revealed from Jesus himself to Paul. Paul had one-on-one special revelations from Jesus personally. Unlike most people in the New Testament, except for those who actually were with Christ in human flesh. But Christ shows up in special revelations to Paul after his resurrection and ascension and teaches Paul doctrine. So whatever Paul writes is the authority of the church, is the authority of God to the church. And not only that, but Peter tells us that No prophecy is ever written without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides and leads the authors of Scripture. So whatever Paul's writing to Timothy is not only the teaching directly from Jesus, but it is the words of the Holy Spirit inspired by God himself. Or as Paul says to Timothy, it is the breath of God that comes out of God and in through the Spirit and into the man who writes Scripture. And we know that because there are 40 authors in Scripture who wrote Scripture over a span of 3,000 years, and there are guys writing Scripture scripture who don't know what the other guy wrote and they're all writing the same thing 
So there's no dispute between Scripture itself. People try to create disputes, but that's not the Word's fault. That's our human frailty that, help, that, that, that makes us not see the correlation between different texts of Scripture. But ultimately, we have this absolute confidence that Paul has the teaching of Christ and the authority of God himself by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to Timothy as specifically direction for the church. So the letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are called the pastoral epistles. Epistle means letter. So the pastoral letters, pastoral referring to pastors. So it's a letter for pastors, which is probably the only reason I hesitated to preach 1 Timothy. Because I'm reading, I'm going, well, this is really for me, not for them. But that's, of course, not true. Of course, it's for the church. Because the church needs to know what's expected of the pastor, and the church needs to know what the pastor is going to do. Because this isn't just, hey, this is for the pastor. Hey, Timothy, don't share this with anyone in your church. All these letters were written to be circulated among churches and for the people. So this would have been read out loud by Timothy in the church in Ephesus, and they would have discussed it and talked over it over and over and over again, just like we do every Sunday. We'd have... Timothy with Paul's letter, reading Paul's letter, explaining Paul's letter, preaching Paul's letter, which is God's word, to the congregation. And that was Timothy's job in Ephesus, just like that's my job here, that's my responsibility here. So Paul writes this letter, but first, before he writes 1 Timothy, he wrote a different letter. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians, which is our book of the Bible, Ephesians. So it's, a, it's about 60 to 62 AD. Paul's in Roman prison. So he's imprisoned by the Romans. This is his first Roman imprisonment. And it's while he's in this first Roman imprisonment that Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. And we also see Paul meet in the book of Acts. We see Paul meet with the Ephesian elders and teach them what they need to know, what they need to do, um, I'm not going to dive into that because that's its own separate, really kind of deep doctrine and theology that goes on there. But that's really good to understand that Paul already established the church in Ephesus. He already wrote a letter to the Ephesians, which is the letter we have, and he's already met with the elders. So this church is established. They have doctrine already in place. They have theology kind of figured out. And if you read the book of Ephesians, it's the first three chapters are doctrine, and the last three chapters are application. So it's the church in Ephesus has everything it needs except for a primary elder to lead the church and preach and teach. So Paul and Timothy, on their journey, Paul gets released from prison, from Roman imprisonment. He takes Timothy with him, and they go to Ephesus. And Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus and says, Timothy, stay here. The church already has my letter. The church already has, I've already met with the elders, and the church is already established. I need you to stay here. I need you to... to to shepherd this church. I need you to deal with false doctrine in the church. I need you to deal with the disorder in their worship. And I need you to find qualified elders to lead the church. And I need you to establish elder authority in the church. And then Paul, which is why Paul met with the Ephesian elders and why Paul leaves Timothy with them to set up what the church has today, an authority, a hierarchy of authority in the church. You've got elders who are leading congregations. The elders themselves aren't special or unique or anything, whatever. They're just men chosen by God to do what God tells them to do. And their responsibility is to say, God, what do I do? And he goes, read my Bible. And we go, okay. <laughs> and then we lead the church. That's it. And the congregation is to submit to the elders, not because the elders are special. We have to make a distinction between the person who fills the role and the role itself. Mark is not better than you. He's not smarter than you. He's not more spiritual than you. Mark is a wicked, wicked, evil human being who hated God wanted nothing to do with Jesus, did not believe the word until God by his grace chose to save me and show me the beauty of Christ in whom I believed by God's grace. And then God said, Mark, I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you to do this thing. And reminds, he reminds me <laughs> regularly, 
there's nothing special about you, Mark. <laughs> I love you in, in a sense that, like, you know, God's like, you're special to me like a son because he loves me and, you know, all of us are unique in our own way. So I'm not saying, like, this isn't, like, self-deprecating, beat myself down, like, oh, I'm just this worthless. No, I just, there's nothing special about the guy. There's nothing special about the elder. They're just called. That's all. That's the only difference. And so it's not the man who's in the role, although the man, and we'll see this in 1 Timothy, the man who fills that role does have to meet certain qualifications. And those qualifications are important because we look at the qualifications for elders and we tend to think, oh, that's, you know, they need to be above reproach. And then it's just this list in chapter 3. It's this list of all these things that an elder has to, these qualifications they have to meet. And it's like, man, what a high standard. Here's the reality. That standard might look high. That is a standard for every single Christian. The thing is that not every Christian does live up to those standards. And that's something that we work on. That's part of our spiritual growth. You know, if you don't meet those standards, that's okay. That's where we're going. Like, that's, where we're, that's why spiritual maturity matters. That's why we spend all this time in the Word. That's why we do, do discipleship and have Bible studies. And we meet for church and is, is to get together, for you to learn and grow so you can meet those standards. It's just that for elders, God says, these are required to fill this role. And so all of this doctrine finds its application in the church in Ephesus. And we get this letter that kind of reveals or shows us how Paul's theology and doctrine becomes like real in the church. And, and we'll talk about the applications of some of these things in our church as well as we kind of work through these texts. So, Paul's released from his first Roman imprisonment in 62 AD, and he takes Timothy to Ephesus, leaves Timothy at Ephesus, and then Paul leaves and goes on to Macedonia. And it's while Paul is in Macedonia that he writes this letter, 1 Timothy, and sends it to Timothy in somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. About a year or two after Paul leaves Timothy, he writes him this letter. So now the Ephesian church has Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that Paul's met with the elders, the church is established, they have a new pastor, Timothy, and Timothy has one letter and is about to get a second letter as well that instructs the church. Ephesus has everything it needs. And Ephesus needs it because the town of Ephesus was the epicenter of false worship. Of They, they had, a, a, they had a, 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 a whole temple to the goddess of sexuality, essentially, and the way they worshipped was wildly inappropriate. I mean, these are pagans and unbelievers, and they worship God through various uh, sexual sins. So, it's a very corrupted place. It's a very corrupted town with uh, a lot of different pers- a lot of different uh, cultures in that town, and with a variety of cultures come a variety of False beliefs, heresies, um, manipulations of the gospel, manipulations of God, and just pagan beliefs. And so there's a lot going on in Ephesus, and we'll see that all kind of come to life as we walk through this letter. So this letter, like I said, is not very heavy in doctrine. Instead, it's heavy in application of doctrine. It's a very practical letter on how the church should function. So all of this historical context I'm trying to feed you, all this just kind of serves as like a a groundwork. I would call this like a short, brief, really simple uh, kind of foundational historical context that helps us understand the letter in general. And as we walk through the text, we'll be able to dig more and more into this historical context to get a better understanding of the meaning of this letter. But with that, we're going to go to verse 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and Paul writes, Paul identifying himself as the author, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, as usual, Paul does what he does in almost every letter, and he says he's an apostle. So he calls himself an apostle. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. So Paul looks at himself and considers, I am one who was sent But Paul's reason for identifying himself as an apostle in 1 Timothy is different than his reason in other letters. So like Paul will call himself an apostle 
in one letter and then call himself an apostle in a different letter, but his reasons for saying it are very different. For example, the Galatians. Paul writes his letter to the Galatians and he says, Paul, an apostle, calls himself an apostle. Why does he call himself an apostle in Galatians 1? Because the Galatian church was not sure of Paul's authority because there were defectors and syncretists, syncretists are people who take the gospel and any other belief and they try to stick them together and create a, a brand new false gospel. They're synchronizing different beliefs and trying to coordinate them into one. It's heresy. It's a false teaching. And that's what was happening in Galatia. And Paul had people in Galatia who were opposing him and literally telling everybody in Galatia, Paul's not a real apostle. Paul never met Jesus. Paul, and they're just they're trying to discredit Paul's authority, his apostolic authority. And Paul's like, no, I'm an apostle. So Paul says he's an apostle to the Galatians to validate his apostolic authority. That is, he does not need to tell Timothy, hey, Timothy, in case you didn't know, I have apostolic authority from Jesus. Timothy would be like, yeah, I know. Like, dude, I just spent years with you. You think I don't know that? We've been together for like, you know, 15 years. Like, this isn't Paul trying to establish his authority as he does in other letters. What Paul is giving Timothy He's giving to Timothy his own authority. That's why he's calling himself an apostle. He is telling Timothy, Timothy, I am an apostle of God and of Christ. By the command of God and, of, and, and in Christ, I am an apostle. That apostolic authority, I am, I am revealing to you in this letter so that you can take this letter with its authority from God and deliver it to your people. So what Paul is doing by calling himself an apostle is he is carrying his apostolic authority into Timothy's ministry, but it has to stand on this letter. Timothy has to deal, has to deal with the Ephesian church on Paul's behalf, and so he needs that authority because there's a lot of issues in Ephesus that, that Timothy's going to have to deal with. And this is an encouragement to Timothy. He gets to wield Paul's doctrine and, and he gets to you know, practically apply the authority of Paul's doctrine to the church. And that kind of makes me wonder, like, does Timothy then have more authority as a pastor in Ephesus than a modern-day pastor would have in their church? And the answer is no. He doesn't. Timothy doesn't have more authority than in Ephesus than I do here or any other pastor does anywhere else. Because the authority, as I said earlier, doesn't come from Timothy. Where does the authority come from? Paul. Paul is an apostle sent by God with the authority of God to be the authority. And God fills Paul with the Holy Spirit and teaches Paul directly from Christ exactly what the church needs to believe and do. So even though Paul is the human being who has the authority, it is the authority of God through Paul written into these letters that Timothy carries. And so what authority Timothy stands on is not himself or even Paul himself, but the letters written by the Holy Spirit through Paul, that's the authority. And it's the same letter that we're looking at right now. So, my authority as a pastor or an elder in the church is the word. Not me, but the word. The word is what we stand on. And so, this letter, for, I mean, Timothy gets this letter and he's reading, he's going, all right, this is how the church should function. This is our command. This is the word of God for us, the church. And 2,000 years later, we pick up the same letter, we read it, and we go, same solution, same product. This is the letter from God by Paul for the church and how we should function. And so it is not the pastor it is that, that has the authority. It's not the person. It's not Timothy himself. It's not even Paul himself, except for the fact that God made Paul an apostle and used Paul, and he's going to use Timothy just as well. And so... My authority as a pastor and an elder and Brian's authority as an elder in the church, that has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with Brian. It has everything to do with God's word, his establishment of church authority and leadership and eldership and what that means and that it has to stand on and be predicated on this word, nothing else. And that's important because 
if we don't have the same letter that Timothy has, then how could the church ever survive? So God preserves his word for thousands of years so that we don't have to deal with that problem. So in verse 1, Paul says that his authority as an apostle was by command of God. Like, this is a really important truth in here that is subtly placed within this text. And, and we know it's subtly placed because we also know Paul's doctrine from other letters. So if we were to take all of Paul's teaching on God and his commands and how he calls people and uses people and how he works through apostles and whatever, and we kind of gather up the entirety of Paul's theology and collect it into just what our own theology, and we, we start reading scripture with that theology in mind, we start to see Paul's theology poking through and, and, and revealing a little bit of light through different texts that might not be explicitly stating those truths, but implicitly revealing them. And this is one of those cases where Paul's not explicitly talking about God's sovereignty, but he is implying God's sovereignty. And we know Paul's theology on God's sovereignty because we have all these other letters where Paul teaches us about God's sovereignty. And so he says that he was an apostle by, and his authority as apostles, by the command of God. Paul has no decision, no rebuttal to becoming an apostle. He was chosen and he was sent. He was never asked. I mean, if you read Acts 9, when Paul's conversion, do you know that story? Paul's on, the way, on his way to Damascus. He's like, I'm going to kill some Christians. Like, he hates the church. He hates Jesus. He is a great zeal to, for God. Paul is not does not think of himself as evil, and, and he, he is, thinks of himself as a religious leader. Like, he's looking at the church, he's going, Jesus is a false messiah. God in the Old Testament, God in the Scripture, he's real. I love God, and my devotion to the real God of the Jews, our father, Abraham's God, that's the God I serve. And these people are following a false messiah, and they need to be killed because they are defaming and destroying the name of our God, the father of Abraham. So, so Paul's zeal is a religious and real zeal. He does, he's not just like, oh, I want to kill Christians. He's like, they are ruining God's name. So Paul has a genuine, real like fealty to God and zeal for Scripture. And he knows Scripture and he loves God and he loves the Jews and he loves Israel and he loves God's people and the problem is he just doesn't think that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul really doesn't know God, according to Jesus. Jesus says you can't know the Father if you don't know me. So on, as Paul's on his way to kill these Christians out of religious and Old Testament zeal, he runs into Christ, who shines so brightly he blinds Paul. And we know it's bright enough to blind Paul because Acts 9 says this happens at midday. The sun is at its peak. This bright as bright gets out. And, and Jesus' glory revealed to Paul is so bright that it blinds Paul. And if you read that transaction between Jesus and Paul, Jesus doesn't go, hey, Paul, where are you going? Uh, Damascus. To do what? To kill these people who follow Jesus. Why? Who are you? Uh, I am that Jesus. Well, good for you. Get out of my way. No, Paul, I really want you to turn around and follow me. I don't really want to follow you. Well, what if I convince you to follow me? All right, well, convince me. And, you know, this conversation, I'm just making it up as I go. That didn't ever happen, right? What happened is Jesus shows up so bright in his glory, Paul's blinded, and Paul goes, Lord? Who are you? He goes, I'm the one you're persecuting, Jesus. Now, Paul, you're going to go here. This guy's going to heal you. You're going to be fine. And you're going to go preach my gospel. Paul's like, okay. Why the sudden change of heart, Paul? Did Jesus take time to convince him? Did Jesus make arguments with him? What happened? Nothing happened. Nothing that Paul did happened. Paul's heart was changed in an instant. And if you read all of his letters... He talks about this calling, this effectual calling when your 
When your predestined election takes place in real life. That's Paul's experience in Acts 9. Paul was elected and predestined before the foundation of the world. That's in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why he's writing that in Ephesians chapter 1. Because it's his experience. And he knows it's true. And he's taught directly by Jesus. So we know that it's true. And Paul experiences election come to life in that moment. Paul, there was no argument or debate. He wasn't like, I don't want to go. God just, Jesus just shows up and the Holy Spirit regenerates his heart, converts him immediately. And Paul's will and his desire was to destroy the church and destroy the name of Christ. And Jesus shows up and goes, I'm going to change your will in an instant. And he does. And all of a sudden, Paul's blinded and instantly gets up and goes, I have a new will and a new desire to serve you, Lord. I love you. Why? Because Christ first loved him. The only reason Paul is converted is because Jesus changed his heart. There's no conversation. It's just instantaneous. And that's Paul's experience in his salvation. And then Paul teaches us that even though all of us have different real life experiences in our conversion, it's the same principle and the same truth, same fundamental reality in everybody else's salvation. Every believer is regenerated by the Holy Spirit because 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says you cannot say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So our hearts need to be regenerated by the Spirit before we can even confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. That salvation takes place against your will against your will. It was against Paul's will. Paul had a will, kill Christians. Jesus showed up and said, no, serve the church and then die for the church. And Paul's like, okay. Like that doesn't happen out of choice. You don't just show up and go, hey, I know you were going to go do this thing, but I just want to know, would you maybe want to like, instead of doing that, instead of killing church, you yourself die for the church? Well, with Paul's ambition to destroy the church, there's no way Paul's going to go, sure, I'll just switch sides and die for it. That makes no sense. And not only does it not make sense, it's just not what Scripture teaches us. Instead, we get Paul's conversion story is God's immaculate grace to show up and change Paul's life in an instant. Holy Spirit goes in, regenerates the heart. With regeneration comes the gift of faith by God's grace. And with faith, now gifted to us at the point of regeneration, when we're justified in that faith that was given to us as a gift, that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that says it's a gift. With that, we confess, Romans 10, 9, we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we're saved. Apart from your will, against your will. That's the beauty of the gospel. God changes your will. He changes your desire. Our experience, our effectual experience of those moments of conversion really does feel to us like we're choosing him. We desire him. We're like, oh, I really do want this Jesus. This is awesome. The only reason you can think that way or talk that way or confess that truth or believe in him is because God has already changed your will through regenerated, by regenerating your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it's possible. Because Ephesians 2, 1 says we're dead. And I don't know about you, but I've never met a dead person who raised themselves back to life except for Jesus. So someone who's dead in their sins and trespasses cannot, out of their death, choose life. It's not possible. This is, why, this is what we see in Ezekiel 37, in the Valley of the Dry Bones. These are, the, the, the Valley of the Dry Bones is a, an image of the gospel. And it comes right after Ezekiel 36 where God makes this new covenant promise that I will cause you to be saved. I will cause my spirit to go into you and my spirit will cause you to obey. God's doing all the putting of the spirit, all the putting of obedience, all the causing of obedience and all the causing of following him. And then right in the next chapter, chapter 37, we get the valley of the dry bones where is an image of us. We are the dry bones. These are bones that means these were, were people who are now dead. It's an image. It's imagery, right? These are dead people. And they're, they've been dead for so long, their bones are dry, which means all the muscle fiber and skin and anything that's dissolvable or uh, whatever, decayable, has already decayed and gone away. And all that's left are bones. And these bones didn't just recently decay. The bones are so old that they themselves are dry. And the point is to emphasize how dead we are. 
We're not like, kind of dying. It's not, you know, we're not like, we jumped in the pool and we're drowning and Jesus swooped in and saved us from drowning. No, no, no. We're at the bottom of the pool and we're dead. And we're not only at the bottom of the pool and dead, but we have been dead for a long time. We're so dead, our skin is gone and our muscles are gone and all the, the muscle fibers and the tendons are gone or whatever. And all that's left is dry bones. That's what Ezekiel 37 is about. And what does God do to the dry bones? He breathes life into the bones and they get up and they come to life did those bones go i want to live no they're dead they have no thought no care no concern no desire no will no nothing and god breathes life into them and makes that's a picture of what he just promised in ezekiel 36 and it's a picture of what he's telling what is a picture of how paul experienced salvation too that paul had a will and he was dead in his sins and trespasses that's what he writes to the ephesians in chapter 2 And he says, but God, Ephesians 2, 4, but God who is rich in mercy. And then he explains the gospel and how God breathes life into death and transforms us against our will because our will is not for him, without him. So Paul's conversion in Acts 9 is, is really important to this story because we get Paul's theology from his experience as much as we get it from Jesus teaching him. There are times when God seems to make decisions alongside humans. We see this in scripture. It looks like God is changing his mind, right? It looks like God's like, I'm going to do this. And someone's like, God, don't do that. And he's like, ah, you got me. I'll change my mind, right? It, It looks like, when you read it, it looks like Moses, for example, intercedes for Israel and changes God's mind. God might communicate to us that he's changing his mind, but that's because our minds can only fathom the idea of a mind changing far easier than our minds can fathom the idea of a sovereign God doing everything that he causes, which is what he teaches all throughout scripture. That he is the ultimate cause of every activity. He ordains every action, every thought, every movement, every molecule. Colossians chapter 1, he holds all things together. And so he is sovereign over all of this, and yet he, we see Moses go, God, don't do that. And he's like, okay, I won't. And it looks like God's changing his mind. He's not changing his mind. It, it looks to Moses as if God is changing his mind. But this was God's plan the whole time to change his mind. And the reason was because God loves you. And he loves Moses. And he loves Israel. And he's like, I, they need to learn some things. They need to depend on me. So I'm going to have Moses intercede and, 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 and bring his concern to me. And I'm going to change my mind. So Moses recognizes a couple things. Number one, you desperately need me. And number two, I want you to know that I listen to you. That I care about you. That your feelings and thoughts are important to me. If, if we just think of a sovereign God as this like, I'm just this sovereign being who just determines everything. It's such a distant and cold God. And that is not at all what God is like. He is pure love. He is love like you've never seen or experienced before. That any reality of love in all of existence comes from the love of God. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. He is love and he is peace and joy and grace and goodness and kindness. And and, and he shows us that by interacting with us and listening to us. And so he shows Israel and he shows Moses, I'm a good God who cares about your feelings. I care about what you think. I care about what you're going through. And Moses goes, well, can you save us and not destroy us like you want to? And God's like, yeah, totally. To show his goodness. That doesn't remove his sovereignty. Moses didn't change God's mind. God changed Moses. And not only that, but Scripture tells us in Psalm 115.3, our God does all that he pleases. (laughs) Period. (laughs) Like, you can take that and go, yeah, except, or, well, what about, and, well, not in the case of, but that would remove the meaning of that entire verse. God does all that he pleases. And we could dive down that, we could go down that rabbit trail forever. Whatever he wants to do, he does. In Romans 9.16, in reference to our election and predestination and our salvation and the future of Israel, Paul writes in Romans 9.16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion or effort, but on God. That's who your election is determined by. God, not you. And so that might lead you to this question of, If that's true, if like God determines everything and I can't change God's mind, 
Why? Why would we pray? What would the point of prayer be if God is so sovereign that everything is determined by God? I might as well just sit on my couch and just wait till the end and not do anything. Why would I serve? Why would I pray? Why would I read? Why would I study? Why would I grow? God's going to do whatever he wants. Because God is not only, and I've said this a million times from this pulpit, but God is not only sovereign over the end result, he's sovereign over the means. So if God is determined to make certain things happen, the way in which those things happen come through us obeying his commands. So prayer is a means for, for, to create in us our dependence on him. And it also means, it's also the means by which God reveals his, like, his loving desire and care for our, our earthly and human concerns. Like God cares about your heart. God cares about what you think. God cares about you because he loves you in a way that you could never even really fathom. It's so deep and so real. We almost can't imagine it. And though God is sovereign over your future and sovereign over your day and sovereign over everything, he says, talk to me. I want to hear your heart. I want to hear your mind. I want to know what you're thinking and feeling. And I want to respond to what you're thinking and feeling to show you that I love you and that I care. And don't worry about what does happen. I have sovereignly ordained the future already. This is what's going to happen. Now, in order for that to happen, I'm going to give you a command. That command is pray. And when you do pray, because you obey my command, which I cause you to do, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will use that prayer as the means by which I fulfill what I have already ordained. So prayer is for us. God doesn't need to hear from us. He wants to hear from us. And we need to talk to him because we need to depend on him. And he uses your prayers as the means by which he fulfills and accomplishes his ultimate end and goal. Or his purpose and his will. So, for example, if it is God's will to heal you from cancer and you pray for healing and God heals you, then God ordained both your healing and he also ordained your prayers. So God being sovereign doesn't remove our need for prayer because we do not know what God's sovereign will is. We don't know what his will is. So we can't just go, well, what's the point of praying if God just knows what's going to happen, he's going to make it all happen anyways? Because, well, for the reason I just listed, and one, we don't know what that future is. And he commands us to pray. So we pray, and he reveals it, and as we pray, we learn more about him, and we begin to trust his sovereign nature. So it not only builds dependence, but it de dependence builds trust, and we trust him more. And we're like, the more we understand what he's like, and the more we trust in his sovereignty, really, the easier life is, even if life gets harder. And no one knows this reality better than Paul. Not only does Paul preach and teach this absolute sovereignty of God throughout his letters, but he himself experienced that firsthand when he was instantly changed on that road to Damascus. And so we might read past these words, Paul, an apostle. But for Paul and for Timothy, this was praiseworthy expression of God's good and perfect will and acted upon Paul for the sake of advancing his church and, and God receiving his due praise and worship for, for those whom God chose to save. And Paul ensures that God gets the credit for his work in the church by saying that his apostolic calling was sovereignly by command of God. Paul's in saying, God said to do this and I did it. Paul is saying, God is working. God called me, God saved me, God commanded me, I had no argument, I had no debate, I had no rejection. God regenerated my heart against my will, changed my will, commanded me to go, and I go against my will. But now, in Christ, he gives me a new will, and now I desire to serve him, I desire to know him. That is what Paul is getting at. That is the underlying foundation of Paul's theology, and it's super vital to the rest of this letter. Now, at the end of verse 1, he calls God our Savior and he calls Jesus our hope. Now, the Father gets one specific title and the Son gets a different specific title. Both, 
But both titles do apply to both father and son. So like we're looking at this going, because like, if you said, who's our savior, what would you say? Jesus, right? I mean, I probably wouldn't answer the question, who's the savior, and say God, the father. I would say Jesus is my savior because scripture calls him our savior. But here Paul's saying God's the savior. Well, then what's Jesus? Oh, he's our hope. So he's not saying God is not our hope and Jesus is not our savior. What he's actually revealing is that they're both both. He's, he's really showing the unity because other texts tell us that Jesus is our Savior and other texts tell us that God is our hope. So we know that God is now both our Savior and our hope and Jesus is both our Savior and our hope. And the point that Paul is making is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are all one at work preaching the same gospel for the church. And when you read Ephesians chapter 4, it starts to make sense because in Ephesians 4, he says... Hold on... <laughs> There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. He's showing the unity of God in the church, especially in Ephesus, because he write, as he writes that text to the Ephesians. And that's important as Paul begins to develop his theology and makes these applications of his theology to Timothy to lead the church. What Paul is doing is he's magnifying the unity of God expressed toward us in the gospel. So like, he's using the gospel, which reveals the unity of God. So Paul's using that gospel to show us how unified God is in one person, yet revealed in distinct persons. So there's one God, three persons, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. And I know for us, that's like, that doesn't make sense. Because, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the reality of who God is, is genuinely inexpressible, unsearchable, unfathomable, and unbelievable. I'm all not, not unbelievable because we can believe it. But like it's just beyond our comprehension. And so this God who is one God is so united in his three distinct persons that there is no difference between them. Though they're distinct in personhood, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are so united they are the same. And I don't want to dive into that because that's a whole other rabbit trail. But it's important that Paul establishes that now because it's going to show up later. And what it shows us now is that the Father chooses to save us, so he's called Savior. The Son fulfills that choice, he becomes our hope. And in Jesus fulfilling our salvation, he becomes our Savior as well. And being our Savior, it is he in whom we have hope. Christ is our Savior, so it's him in whom we have hope, which is why Paul calls him the hope. Now, hope is a biblical word that refers to assurance. Hope does not refer to something you wish to happen but rather it refers to something you look forward to. And the eternal joy of the presence of Christ is without a doubt our greatest hope, and, that, and it is that which we as his followers should long for more than anything. More than anything, we should desire to be with Christ. Paul clarifies that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, my desire is to depart, that means die, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's the, the greatest desire for Paul, is to be in the presence of God. And we know this because in Psalm 1611, it says that in the presence of God, there is pleasure forevermore and endless joy. That is the presence of God, to be in the presence of Christ. How could you not look forward to that? Imagine, what do you want more than anything in life? Do you want more than anything in life to be miserable? Do you want more than anything in life to have a terrible day? Are you so excited for the next time someone rams their car into yours and you have to go through insurance and get your car fixed and take it to the auto body shop and deal with all the new paint? Blah, 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 blah. Do you excited about that? No, it's miserable. Are you excited to go work for the next 40 years of your life until you basically retire and then you die? Does that sound fun? No. Like there's so much about our lives that lack joy and that's part of the human existence with sin nature like 
life can be challenging and hard and difficult and painful. And what do you really want? I mean, what do you really want? Like, let's be honest. What do you want to do this afternoon? When church is over and you leave those doors, think deep down in your heart, what do I really want? You know what? I'm going to be honest with you what I want. I want to go home. I'm going to take off these really uncomfortable jeans and this really uncomfortable shirt and put on my Green Bay Packer pajamas. <laughs> and I want to sit on the couch with a cup of coffee with some pumpkin spice creamer in it. I'm going to ask my wife to make me something delicious. And I'm going to watch seven hours of football. <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm just being honest. That's what I want. I don't know if that's going to happen. You know how many times I've wanted to do that and it got interrupted by something else? It's just part of life. I, I'm aware that that might not happen. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. That's what I want to do. And I, you could be like, man, what a waste of your life. Listen, there's only one weekend a year where there is the AFC and NFC championships in the same day. All right, so give me a break. I want to watch both games. But that's what my heart really wants. That's what I want to do. I'm just being honest with you. Some of you probably feel the same way. Like, that sounds nice. It sounds relaxing. Go home. Maybe you're like, nah, I don't care about football. I just want to go home and, like, work on my, you know, maybe do, maybe do, like, woodworking or you'd like to, I don't know, whatever it is you do. Whatever you like. Well, what do you want to do? Just be honest with about what you really want. So let me ask you this. What is at the bottom of that thing you want to do? What are you really ultimately seeking? Because football does not bring me my ultimate satisfaction, nor does a giant cup of pumpkin spice coffee, okay? None, and nor sitting in my pajamas on my comfortable couch. None of that stuff is my ultimate joy. So really, in all of that, what am I seeking? Pleasure. Joy. This is... This is why... Sex is such a high priority for human beings because ultimately our greatest desire is pleasure and joy and happiness. That is ultimately what we're made for. And what the Bible teaches us and what Paul says in Philippians 1.23 is that there is no greater joy and pleasure than Christ. That's the ultimate point. And so, I'm just, the reason I'm asking you what you did today is because I want you to make the connection in your brain that ultimately everything I do in my life is really trying to serve this purpose that I get joy and pleasure in life. I just want to be happy. And you'll never find happiness like you can find in Christ. And you'll never know the, the, the pinnacle and the height, the highest height of joy and pleasure and satisfaction until you are standing face to face with Jesus. Amen. That will be it. You, no other human pleasure in this physical body or on this earth will ever compare to the joy, pleasure, and satisfaction of standing in the presence of Christ. And that is why Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That means when I go to heaven, I'm not going just to heaven. It's not heaven I'm excited about. It's Christ who I'm excited about. That's the point. And that's the point that Paul's getting to is that Jesus is our hope and he teaches this to Timothy so that Timothy can take this message and go to the church and go, church, if there's anything you learn, if there's anything you know, if there's anything you hear today, let it be this. Christ, Jesus, your Lord, is your greatest joy. He is your greatest pleasure. You want satisfaction in life? Jesus. If you're looking for it in other things, you're never going to find it, which is why you're still looking. So, even in Christ now, though we have incredible pleasure and joy in Christ now, we still have our sinful flesh that <laughs> ruins it for us a lot. And that's what makes Jesus our hope. We look forward to this future when we are glorified in Christ and perfected in Christ. There's no more sinful nature. There's no more human flesh that destroys our love and our passion and our joy and our satisfaction in Christ. It is all perfected. And you will know pleasure unlike you've ever known before. This is why there's no marriage in heaven. Why would you need to be married in heaven? Because the pinnacle of marriage is the sensual pleasure between a husband and wife. That sensuality 
between a husband and wife that they experience is meant to express the pinnacle of joy as the marriage is a picture of the gospel. That, is a, that physical activity is an expression of our pleasure in Christ. And so why would we need marriages or anything that goes along with marriage in heaven when there's no human pleasure that could ever top the presence of Jesus? So why have marriages? Which my wife hates because she wants to be married to me eternally. I don't understand why, but she does. <laughs> and I've, I've told you guys this before, and I told her this. I said, we'll hang out all the time in heaven, I swear. So we'll be best friends, BFFs. So this hope in Christ of eternal joy is the goal. That's what we look forward to. That's why we obey. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we love God. That's why we, that's why we submit our lives to him. Now, <laughs> amen to that. And I do have verse 2 for today. I'm going to do it next week, okay? So I'm going to save you guys that. So we will pick up in verse 2 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. You're so good to us. Uh, we love you. You make us so happy. And even when we're not happy, that's not because you didn't fulfill a need. It's because we are pursuing something other than you. So fix our eyes on you and make that reality that Christ is our hope be a reality that you produce in our lives through your sovereign will and your sovereign grace. Give us the faith to believe and the obedience to follow your word so that we would honor you and be satisfied in you. We want to be close to you. We want to be close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.